Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of Yukon 360. It's the only podcast in the entire multiverse that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. I am your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka. Happy New Year! Ken Best. I am here. Happy, happy. And we are coming to you from the beautiful Lakeside Building in Stores, Connecticut. We've got an exciting program for you today. Lots of things to learn, lots of fun to have. And why don't we kick it off with some Husky headlines. Julie, what, uh, what's going on in the world of UConn? We've got some Rudd Center news, which I feel like we have often because they produce a lot of interesting stuff. The Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity and the Yale School of Public Health have published some new findings related to childhood obesity. A randomized trial published in the January 2019 American Journal of Preventative Medicine showed that strong school nutrition policies are associated with lower increases in the body mass index of middle school students. At the schools where healthy eating was promoted through nutrition newsletters for families, school lunches that meet federal guidelines, limits on sugary drinks and encouraged water consumption, and limited use of food or drink as rewards, student BMIs only increased by 1% over three years compared to 3 and 4% at schools that didn't have such policies. The research aimed to assess the impact of the nutrition and physical activity components of school wellness legislation, including the Healthy and Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010. And Rudd Center head Madeline Schwartz said it is the strongest evidence to date that nutrition education and promoting healthy eating at school can have positive benefits on children's health. All right, that's interesting. Ken, what's, uh, what's going on in your world? UConn economics professor emeritus and social rights scholar Susan Randolph was named a co-recipient of the 2019 Grommeyer Award for Improving World Order. The award is presented by the University of Louisville and honors those who take on issues of global concern and present ideas that inspire others and can lead to more just and peaceful world. Professor Randolph shares the award with her collaborators, Kiko Fukada-Parr of New York University and Tara Lawson-Raymer of Stanford. The three scholars were a book in 2015 titled Fulfilling Social and Economic Rights that presented a method for gauging how well nations are providing basic human rights of food, health, education, housing, work, and social well-being to their citizens. They also suggest how nations can advance such rights even further. These ideas introduced in their book continue through the Economic and Social Rights Empowerment Initiative and the Human Rights Measurement Initiative. These efforts are providing new tools for shaping policy and scholarship, driving more inclusive and dynamic approaches to economic development. Professor Randolph and her colleagues will receive the award in Louisville in April and give talks about their ideas. Uh, previous winners of the uh, Grommeyer Award include Mikhail Gorbachev who was honored for his 1988 address to the United Nations, which led to the effective end of the Cold War, uh, Trita Parisi for his work reducing tensions in the Middle East, and Dana Byrd for her work examining the influence of foreign-backed funding for education and what effect it has on war-torn countries and how such aid affects humanitarian and peace-building efforts. So we really is, are changing the world. Are you this coming? is a very important honor, I think. Very cool. Very nice. My corner of the world, I've got uh, news of one of my favorite things. Capital projects? Well, th close. Oh, Real okay. estate transactions. All right. Close. Very close. Very close. I do love capital projects. The, our board of trustees uh, have finalized the sale of our former campus property in Torrington. Mm -hmm. It is being sold to uh, Five Points, which is a local arts and education and community outreach group. Very nice. Very nice. We are going to use the proceeds for the sale to establish a scholarship fund for students from the Torrington area. And we're also going to, the Yukon Extension Service will still be in that same building. So Yukon's still going to be in Torrington. Good. And then kind of an interesting wrinkle, there is a red steel sculpture on the ground in Torrington that was created in 1982 by the artist and publisher Alexander Lieberman, uh, whose uh, works can be found in prestigious galleries and art parks around the country. And we are retaining ownership of that sculpture, nice. uh, and it's going to be moving. 
It's going to come here? It's going to come here to stores. Very cool. We don't know where yet, but uh, at some point, that sculpture is going to be on the store's grounds. Very cool. Public sculpture is very important. It yeah. is. I love the public art at the university. Absolutely. Um, all right. So uh, why don't we jump right into uh, our prepared stories? Let's jump into it. Julie. Yes. What, 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 are, what are you going to play for us? I am going to play a really fun interview with Dr. Aaron Young, who is Assistant Director of the Center for Advancement in Managing Pain and Assistant Professor of Nursing here at UConn. She is a lot of fun, a very engaging person, and she and I talked a little bit about her research on pain, the opioid crisis, and what it's like to be a woman in STEM and academia. My name is Erin Young, and I am an assistant professor in the School of Nursing and in Genetics and Genome Sciences at UConn Health, and I've been here since 2014. So you research the ways people experience pain differently based on their genetics. Is that mm-hmm. accurate? That is a bit accurate, yes. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about what you're focusing on right now, some of your projects? So I'm interested in all kinds of pain, particularly chronic pain or pain without a known source, so pain that we don't know where it comes from. So most recently, I've been studying irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is a pain disorder characterized by chronic abdominal pain, but when all of the lab work and medical results come back, people have nothing of interest, really. Hmm. Um, So they don't have an organic cause or a disease that is generating the pain. They just have the pain. And um, as you can imagine, that makes it really hard to treat. And what we're finding is that actually there are a lot of genetic predisposition factors that increase the likelihood that you'll have one of these chronic pain mm-hmm. syndromes. So things like irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic widespread pain, migraine headache, those are oftentimes influenced by your genetics. And so we don't have it all figured out. It's actually really exciting because we're looking to see if we can figure out how you turn a person who has pain, one of these pain disorders, into someone who's resistant to them. And, it, and we can do that by identifying what causes the pain, what makes you more likely to develop it. And the hope, you know, the pie in the sky goal is that we'll be able to say that we can treat pain very specifically based on the genetic factors that are generating the pain. So if we figure out where it's coming from, we can figure out how to get rid of it. And then we don't have to depend on things like morphine or, you know, nonspecific analgesics like Tylenol and ibuprofen, which are really, really bad for the gastrointestinal tract. The opioid crisis is happening. How does your research kind of dovetail with what's going on in right. that world? Right. So the opioid crisis is is horrifying, right? It's scary for everyone. And so I think there's two things. One is that there are people for whom opioids are extremely effective at treating pain. And those are typically post-surgical or acute pain syndromes. If you break a leg, if you have an acute surgical procedure, they can be quite helpful and get rid of the pain in the short term. Chronic pain, they're not really all that great, but there are people who are in chronic pain who have been treated with opioids for so long that now trying to do things like you read about in the paper or see on social media about forced tapering, which they're Mm -hmm. doing in some states for people who are on opioids is, is really, really catastrophic for them because you're sort of disrupting their new normal. And I think that it's just really heartbreaking to hear these stories of people who are in agony and we're not doing mm-hmm. a very good job of treating them. My research really focuses on what I call precision healthcare approaches. Opioids are like putting a blanket over the cells. You stop the cells from sending the messages related to pain, but you're not really disrupting the process that's generating the pain. You're sort of turning the volume down from another location in the cells. Okay. And my research really focuses on trying to identify the the genetic factors or the mechanisms by which pain is being generated so that we can 
use drugs we already have that 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 target those mechanisms, or so that we can develop new targets, new sort of potential novel therapeutic, I don't know, locations, right? So that we can actually turn off the pain rather than just turning the volume down. We can actually turn that mechanism off, and then you return the cells to their previous normal state. That's the cool thing to me is that it's really this puzzle. We're constantly finding new pieces and trying to figure out how they fit together with the old ones. But I think we can all agree, I think everyone in the pain community can agree that opioids are not the end-all be-all of how we want to treat Mm -hmm. pain. They're a good tool that has utility. But if we could find something that doesn't cause all of these unwanted side effects and have the risk of misuse and tolerance, like that's really the pie in the sky goal. I want to shift gears a little bit. (laughs) So you were recently named chair of a new American Pain Society committee that's focused on advocacy and dissemination of research. By talking to me right now, you're helping reach the public. And you've written a few pieces for The Conversation, which our uh, office has a relationship with to get research out there. And you've started talking with fellow researchers on campus about how to get their work out there. Why is this important? And what kind of things do you think researchers should know when they want to talk about their work to the public? So I think that we have a tendency to downplay the importance of dissemination. You know, I, even as a scientist, think, okay, well, the way that I develop a national profile for you know, being a competent scientist is to write scientific papers for my peers. But I think that especially in a time where there's sometimes an anti-intellectual rhetoric going on in the U.S., and probably everywhere, it's important to take what we do in the scientific forum and to turn it into a usable piece of information for the public. Because really, this breaks down into what's the return on investment. It's not all monetary, but it is important that people understand what the value of the scientific endeavor is. That's one piece. The other thing is more personal in that my, my spouse is also a scientist actually at UConn. And when the conversation contacted me about doing this piece, it was before I had started being involved with the advocacy work group, um, which happened later in the summer, I said, I'm never going to do that. It makes me really uncomfortable. It sounds, no, I don't want to write a piece. And he said, well, something that makes you that uncomfortable might be something you actually need to do. And I was like, you're ridiculous. I don't want to talk to anyone. (laughs) But it actually stuck with me. Like, if this makes me this uncomfortable, perhaps it actually is a teachable moment for myself. As you mentioned, you and your husband are both professors and researchers here. You are kind of vocal about being a woman in the field you're in, being a two, I don't know what your yeah, term two is. two-body problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with a family and how you navigate that. So can you tell me a little bit about sure. what that's like? Yeah, I, in some ways I think I get asked about how you make this work as much as how you do the science that you, know, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that at conferences, once people find out that you're in a long-term relationship that's functional with someone else <laughs> who's in science, they go, how, how do you, how did you make that work? And I'm like, I, oh, man grace like <laughs> good I have he has I have excellent taste he is, he was willing to put up with me now being a woman in science is actually not something that I thought would be interesting mm. I, <laughs> I went to a women's college um, and so I was actually surprised when I got to graduate school and I went to a, a co-ed you know university at Kent State University and I thought oh my gosh there's still people in this world who don't ask questions because or who feel like they can't ask questions because they're in an environment right. that's co-ed and I was like oh this is This is not what I was expecting. Um, And I won't say it was everyone. It wasn't like, you know, some systemic problem. It was just a difference in the way people communicated. And I've been really fortunate in that I have had mentors, both male and female, who were incredibly encouraging, showed me the kind of mentor and scientist that I want to be by example. But you start to see people who see you as a role model. And then they say that to you and you go, are you kidding me? You should really make better choices in your role model side. (laughs) And then you think like, okay, wait a minute. 
wait, this I, is valid. Yeah, right. Like I, you know, I'm hashtag killing it in some ways because they see the product that is now, right? They see the equity that you have in your marriage. They see that you collaborate consistently with, you know, and share data, share information, talk about data. You know, my husband and I run our lab sort of as one seamless unit. And I do think that it is is helpful sometimes to just see people in the job that you aspire to who look and sound like you, who have the same or complementary priorities to what you have. Um, I get a lot of questions like, you know, what do you think about being in a relationship with someone who else is in science? And I'm like, the best advice I can give you for the future is to choose well, because (laughs) that person, right, their level of commitment to equity is going to determine a lot of things and how your life works. If you choose well early, things can be a lot easier. <laughs> if you choose poorly, it can get more complicated. <laughs> Relationship <laughs> advice. Right, yeah, exactly. Dr. Aaron <laughs> Young. <laughs> that's, that's the end of that for sure. Being a woman in STEM, in academia, it stinks that it's still any kind of issue that we should talk about. But as we know, it's 2018 and it is an issue. What are some of the things uh, you've talked about, you know, the whole imposter syndrome thing, which I feel like everyone feels, but I think maybe (laughs) especially women feel like that sometimes. And um, you've also, I saw your tweet recently, which you mentioned last time I talked to you too, was impression management. And you alluded to that with your, you know, when you went to co-ed, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, you don't want to sound like silly if you ask a weird question. So how are you, what are you doing to kind of help, as you're a role model, help women coming after you learn how to speak up and oh not gosh, be pressure. afraid of these things? So, <laughs> so I am fortunate to have an ex, I have many, many excellent colleagues um, on the faculty, but um, one of them in particular does what I call holding you responsible for your own success. His name is Dr. Tom Long. He's faculty in the School of Nursing. He'll say, you have got to speak up, man. Like, you need to toot your own horn. And we sort of joke, like, (laughs) he's like, you need to speak with the confidence of a mediocre man. Because we are, we are like built with this ability to speak very well of ourselves, right? I love that. And I think, oh my gosh, that's super offensive. I would never want anyone to hear me say that. I mean, of course, I'm going to say it to, you know, all the people listening. But in reality, it's just a way to get you over yourself enough. And that's really what it's about, right? Getting over yourself and your worry about whether or not you seem too assertive or like a B word or, Mm -hmm. you know, or if you're going to ask a question that makes you seem less, you know, less intellectually gifted or whatever. Like, I mean, once you get over yourself and you give yourself the opportunity to make mistakes, it's a lot less stressful. Also, you sometimes just have to take a deep breath and be like, well, this is what the world looks like. Doesn't look like me, <laughs> but it will. And it is. And at some point, I have two girls, at some point when my daughters are grown up and they have jobs in whatever they're going to be, it will be uninteresting that their mother was a scientist. Mm-hmm. I am actually both excited for and a little sad for that day, right? Because I'll be uninteresting to them. <laughs> <laughs> That was great. Uh, um, I met her once when she came here for the interview. She was a fangirl of yours. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far, but she was very nice, and I follow her on Twitter. Yes, she is at Dr. Erin Y. She's a good follow. Pain management, a very important part of healthcare. Absolutely. Yes, an overlooked, too often overlooked part of healthcare. Ken. We're going to turn on the sports monitor yes. today for, the, for, for really the very first time from our perspective. Last fall, the... USA basketball national women's team won the uh, FIBA World Cup, which qualifies them for the next Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. Uh, As always, UConn alumna have a very important role in that. Uh, The members of the team who uh, 
uh, were in the, in the pool include Sue Bird of the Seattle Storm, Tina Charles of the New York Liberty, Stephanie Dolson of the Chicago Sky, Tiffany Hayes of the Atlanta Dream, Maya Moore of the Minnesota Lynx, Brianna Stewart of the Seattle Storm, Diana Taurasi of the Phoenix Mercury, and Morgan Tuck, who's still in Connecticut with the Connecticut Sun. So I went down to Bridgeport where they were playing against uh, Team Canada. They won that game and spoke with uh, several of our alumni about the process of selecting the team, which is very difficult. And uh, one of the players who was still in the mix at the time was Nafisa Collier, a senior right now. She was the only college player left in the pool by the very end. She is currently averaging a double-double, averaging at this point 18.6 points per game and 10.5 rebounds. So she's having another good year. She's a senior, and she will make her way down the road. But um, talked with uh, a number of our folks, including uh, Coach Oriema, and sat down with Nafisa when she got back to campus. So here it is. the introduction of UConn players on the USA national women's basketball team in Bridgeport last September as the women's national team was on its way to a 10th FIBA World Cup gold medal. Winning the FIBA gold medal means the U.S. team has automatically qualified for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Invitations for 2018 were sent to 34 of the top players in the nation, primarily WNBA All-Stars and a select group of college players who participated in training camps under the watchful eyes of a selection committee. Ten of the 34 invited to compete for one of the 12 spots were UConn alumni, along with two current Huskies, seniors Nafisa Collier and Katie Lou Samuelson, who did not participate while she recovered from an injury. Almost all of those invited have USA basketball experience, most often playing in world competition since high school or college, making the selection of 12 players for the national women's team a challenge. Jennifer Rosati is an assistant coach to USA head coach Dawn Staley and has a dozen years as a USA basketball coach. She was named 2011 USA Basketball National Coach of the Year after leading the under-19 team to a gold medal. Rosati also served as an advanced scout for the 2016 U.S. Olympic team, led by her former coach Gina Oriema, who guided the U.S. to Olympic gold in 2012 and 2016. They discussed the challenge of selecting the USA team. Uh, it's, it's really been fun to watch some of these young UConn guys uh, grow up, even some of the non-UConn guys that I coached on the younger teams, um, grow up through the ranks and become professional players and see where the, their maturity and their, and as, as people and as basketball players. And I'm just trying to help them. I want to get them to play their best and give their best and, and, and feel like they had the, the opportunity to make the team. One, training camp isn't long enough. Two, you have 12 really, really, really good players. So trying to get all 12 of them into the mix is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, and yet, USA Basketball, the team that makes USA Basketball, they're really, really good at understanding. I'm not, I'm not going to play. Uh, I don't care if you're Dan Tarasi or Subert. I'm not playing more than 20 minutes generally, 25. Matter of fact, if you told any of those veterans, hey, listen, we need you for 38 minutes every night. They go, ah, you know what, I, maybe I don't want to do this that bad. 
Former Husky Morgan Tuck of the Connecticut Sun won three gold medals for USA Basketball as a younger player. In Bridgeport, she was on her way to being selected for the 2018 team and talked about the difficulty of making the roster. The biggest challenge is just it's more competitive. It's harder to make these teams. I mean, I think any USA team is hard to make, but, you know, this is everyone's goal. Anyone that's here, anyone that plays USA, they want to be here. Um, and it's hard. You know, it's hard to make the team, and there's just an expectation level. I think it's brought to the next level when you're with the senior team just because you are supposed to be the standard and the example for the rest of the world, really. Nafisa Collier remained a candidate for the 2018 roster until WNBA playoff participants Tarasi of the Phoenix Mercury and members of this year's WNBA champions Bird and Stewart of the Seattle Storm arrived in camp. Tuck and Oriyama talked about the seniors' progress on the larger stage. She played great, you know, and she's been playing really good in our practices and even in the intra-squad scrimmage. Um, so I'm just really proud of her that, you know, she's the only college kid that's on the um, in the pool, and she's playing really well, so I'm happy for her. She did a lot of great things because I think she surprised people with, like all the things that we see, she surprised people with how active she is, uh, how involved she gets in... Uh, Every facet of the game. People, you know, we see her all the time, but a lot of people don't. So when you watch Nafisa at practice for two or three days or whatever, and then you realize there's, there's hardly any possession that she's not involved in. She's making a defensive play at this end, getting a rebound here, getting a bucket here, getting a, you know, an offensive rebound over here. There's always something at the end of the game when you look up and you go, man, Nafisa's all over the court. Uh, and that took some people by surprise. When Collier returned to stores for the semester, I asked her about the experience she had being among the best basketball players in the world who she grew up watching. It was amazing just being with all the experienced players and being with so many past UConn players. Everyone was so welcoming. They took me under their wing right away. They took all of us college players, you know, when we were all there in the beginning under their wings. They were really welcoming and helpful and just, you know, there every step of the way for us to, you know, help us along and help make sure that we you know, we're comfortable in what we were doing. What did you learn from this experience that you've brought back to your teammates right now? Mm -hmm. um, I would probably say just the intelligence that they play with. You know, I told my team about that, and I've told everyone who's asked me, that is the biggest difference between, you know, the college level and the pros is just how smart they play. And, the, you know, they not always necessarily make, you know, the hardest play. They make the smartest play, and that's how they've been so successful. So I think if we can you know, do that and rise to that level, then for us, this guy's limited as well. What are you doing now differently as a result of that? Mm -hmm. um, I think my level of focus is just a lot different than it's been in the past three years, and it could also be because I'm more experienced, I'm a senior, but I just feel a lot more locked in than I have in the past three years, and I think that has to do with USA because um, you have to be focused the whole time. We're learning so many new plays, and unlike here, you know, I've been doing those for the past three years, so it's kind of you know, on repeat, but there you have to learn things quickly, so you have to be locked in, and um, doing that for the past, whatever, how long I was there, three weeks, I think, really, like, sharpened focus I have with that, and I think I've brought that back to here. What about Coach Rosati, who knows this program a little bit, I think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen her at the other USA training camps, too, so it's, it's cool to have so many people who went to the same school and have had close to the same experience as I'm going through right now. It was really cool to see all those, you know, alum in one place. Well, what's the locker room like with the, the USA team? I mean, obviously you didn't have everyone there, but mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, people who you've watched for a long time. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you there? 
it was really fun and it was cool to see like I mean D for example Diana she could be a coach right now when we go in the locker room she is our coach she's tell- she's drawing stuff on the board she's telling us where we need to be and we listen to her as if she is our coach we listen to all of them because I mean everyone knows what they're talking about so just the level of leadership it was so much so many leaders on that team and they mesh well together it's not like we were fighting for power it's everyone listens to each other everyone takes advice from each other so it was a really cool experience what are your goals for this year just to win every day just take one day at a time and win that individual day we're not looking to the future we're looking to you know be our best in that moment and that will eventually prepare us for what we need to do all right, that was excellent. Ken, I have a question. You've covered women's basketball at UConn for a long time. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this loose talk on the Internet about the UConn women's basketball dynasty coming to an end? Mm. Well, Coach Oriema has been saying for a very long time that uh, no one's entitled to win every year. True. Uh, he works his team very hard, strives for excellence so that they can try to do that every year. And they've had up and down years, as they, as they have for a number of years. It's it's good for the game that everybody gets a chance to win, and every team goes through these ups and downs. The fact that we didn't win the championship two years in a row ignores the fact that we were in the semifinals two years yes. in a we've row. We've dominated for and so we've, long. Yeah. We've been, we are the dominant. We are the dominant program in the 21st century. He doesn't worry about it, and I don't think we should either. Absolutely not. I also will note that a lot of the wags who complain about UConn's winning ways don't have the same criticism of Alabama and football. Hmm. Seems Interesting. Like it's fine when women, lo- I wonder when hmm, women hmm. win a lot, yeah. it's a problem. But not hmm. when men do it. I wonder. I wonder. If that's so just a coincidence. Weird. Actually, this is it's sports related. In fact, it's college football related. But it's really a story about a very brave dog. Oh, we love dogs. In October 1956, one of the worst dastardly acts ever committed on UConn campus happened when Jonathan the Fourth was dognapped from his kennel <laughs> by fraternity members from the University of Massachusetts. That's rough. Ahead of the UConn UMass football game. No, this was after we had kidnapped the Ram from Rhode Island. So there was a long tradition of us kidnapping the Ram, Ram napping. And Is it a real Ram? Yeah, yeah. Ramses. I think or maybe I don't know, maybe the, I forget. Every college football Ram mascot is named Ramses. <laughs> Very creative. Get creative, folks. <laughs> Name it after a governor. Um, <laughs> and URI would occasionally steal the, the, the husky. We call it ram napping. They call it husky hiking. That doesn't even make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. But this is true. In the early 50s, the two universities signed an accord like a peace treaty, agreeing not to kidnap each other's mascots anymore. But there was no such, no such accord with the lawless barbarians north of the border in Amherst. Who also kidnapped Ramses or whatever his name was. Um, so anyway, so the uh, the headline it's a banner front page headline, October 9th, the Daily Campus. It says "Injured mascot gone, suspect dog napping." Because a few days before this, Jonathan the Fourth had been hit by a car. Oh my God, that's so dangerous. And he was recuperating in his kennel. Take him while he's hurt. I know, right? See, because if he was healthy, he would have fought them. <laughs> uh, that's not what I was implying. <laughs> he was eight years old at the time, and. Uh, he was he was getting towards the end of his career as our, we were going to say his life, and I was going to cry. Our good boy. Um, he was actually the first uh, uh, Jonathan mascot to retire on the job. The other three died in the job. Oh, well, good for him. Um, and there's a, a wonderful sentence in the uh, first in the lead paragraph of the news story, which says university officials suspect pre-football game devilry. Devilry. Um, and then there was a taunting article in the Springfield Union saying, "Where's your dog, Yukon?" Oh, right. Mean. So the media was in. 
in the thick with it. That's right. Because those people up in Massachusetts, Thickest you know how they thieves. are. You know how they are. Um, <laughs> however, so that was a Sunday, but this, this is the inspiring part of the story. The following Monday, more than 200 UConn students descended on the UMass campus. Sweet. Breaking into fraternities. Oh, that's not good. Don't and, do that, guys. And chanting, we want our dog. Uh, eventually, the Massachusetts State Police were called out. Oh, my God. And the local Amhersttown police. Um, and so it took about 30 police officers to quell the disturbance. 30? Wow. 30. That's a pretty big problem. But the UConn students wouldn't leave until the state police promised that the dog would be returned. Oh. So they left. And in so fact, they left without the dog? They left without the dog. They just give them the dog while they well, were They didn't there. know where the dog was. Oh, my God. So the Amherst Dean of Men, which is no longer a position at most universities, decreed, like, we're going we're to give your dog back. I'm very surprised that this was allowed to happen. There was also, uh, I should say, that our spirited Jonathan rescuers did a bit of damage to the UMass campus. Great job, guys. Make us look good. Uh, the, uh, the front of their physical education building was splattered with bright blue paint. The word Yukon was painted in white on the sidewalk in front of the building. And U of C was embedded in the football field with diesel oil. Diesel oil. Diesel oil. Nothing like a little vandalism to prove a point. It's very intense. I would I would rally an army of 200 people if Absolutely. someone kidnapped my dog. Or a- Jonathan. Every single 14. one of those students deserves a, a, an honorary degree. Not for vandalism, though. That was too far. The extremism in defense of Jonathan is no vice. <laughs> you said it was in October, so... Diesel oil on the football field is not good because you're playing games yeah. that time of year. That's right. That's right. Uh, there's no a corollary. A cigarette. There's a corollary to this. Two years later, uh, the same fraternity at UMass stole the sign in front of Jonathan's kennel. This time they didn't steal Jonathan. Still Jonathan the Fourth. Uh, they stole the sign in front of his kennel. Where was he kept? Did he like live outside? Somewhere? He was. Uh, he was actually in a kennel um, behind the poultry buildings. Oh. And he was sort of looked after by ag students at the time. Was he cold? I don't have a problem. Well, he's a husky, so probably not. <laughs> probably hot. That's true. Um, so then at the football game, we were playing at Amherst. Uh, this is a great, this, I love this. The fraternity members at UMass started brandishing the sign in the stands, and the marching band <gasps> charged into the stands <laughs> and started punching and like throwing people aside Guys. to get the sign back. Um, Did we have as many as in the band as we have now, which w- is over 300? No, it was a much smaller band. <laughs> I hope we're less violent these it days. Was, it was a much smaller. You know what? Your lack of Jonathan support actually kind of worries me I a little bit. I love Jonathan, but I'm a pacifist. <sighs> Jonathan, anyway. Jonathan visits, visits Lakeside quite frequently. He does. I love him so much. Students at UConn then took up a collection to have the sign replaced. And UMass. They replaced it? They didn't even get it back? They didn't get it back. Because uh, again, the police intervened. The, yeah. the, the Amherst police, who by this point were like well, well versed in <laughs> dealing with Yukon UConn mobs. Yukon defense. Yeah. <laughs> but the University of Massachusetts did send a letter apologizing for stealing oh, the sign. That's nice. I don't think we did. We ever a... steal anything of theirs? I don't My think. God. Well, okay. So here's the thing: their mascot at the time was the extremely racist Red Men. Oh, so it's not like we could kidnap a, mi- yeah. a mascot. Yeah. They changed hard. it in 1972 to the Minutemen, okay. which we also couldn't kidnap because that would actually be a crime. Kidnapping a, why is kidnapping a person a crime and not a dog? Yeah, especially a great dog like Jonathan. Right? Um, wow. So that's a brief history of our Jonathan-related rivalry with the University of Massachusetts. I want you to find out if anything like this has happened more recently. I can do that. I think, I don't know, the 50s was full of pranks and japery and wackiness and hijinks. <laughs> hijinks. Anyway, so Jonathan the Fourth then retired, enjoyed a, a happy retirement. Um, and was replaced by Jonathan V, who we know, we've talked about, was the maniac dog. Oh, my favorite. Uh, who also retired qu- quickly. <laughs> quite quickly, quite swiftly. As they say, every dog has his day. Every ah, dog has his day. That was a good one. And uh, shout out to all the UConn students who descended on Amherst, Massachusetts, and 
uh, demanded our dog back. If if you were part Email of that, us. I was going to say you're going to you can put the call out. Yeah, yeah. If, if you were part of that raiding party, or if you were in the marching band and just started punching spectators <laughs> at a football game to get our sign back, please contact us. We would love to put you on the air. We won't hold it against you. Not only what that, you did when we, you were a teenager. We will celebrate your exploits. Um, at, that's at Yukon Podcast. Yes. Uh, also, at main underscore old is where old pictures, Tom's History Corner stuff goes. I will. I have a great picture of the marching band charging into yes. the stands great. and causing mayhem. I will post that. Awesome. Uh, Julie, what about you? I am on Twitter at Julie Bartuka, and I want to plug something that I was asked to plug. So after the holidays, you've probably been eating your face off like I have. Mm-hmm. And if you want to lose some weight and help UConn scientists with their research, mm-hmm. the UConn Center for M Health and Social Media is looking for men and women ages 18 to 65 to enroll in a 12-month weight loss program. Compensation will be provided, and the study has been approved by the IRB. So if you're interested, you can call 860-486-8580 or Email mhealthstudy at yukon.edu. Well, Help the researchers lose weight. Win-win. Win-win. Ken? I am at UConn today. Yes. Most of the time. Most of the time. And, and? on Fridays at 11 yes. on WHUS, you can hear the UConn 360 podcast in a slightly different form, especially if you've missed episodes. You can track them down there. All right. Well, so until next time, until a fortnight passes, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Here come the tubas.